Hello, everybody. This is a special episode of the American Shoreline podcast from Galveston, Texas at the San Luis Convention Center. It is the meeting of the Texas Shore and Beach Preservation Association. A couple of great local coastal professionals will be on this show. Sally Bacco, who is a member of the board of the Gulf Coast Protection District, a new entity created by the Texas legislature, to be the local sponsor of one of the biggest civil works projects in America. And Brandon Hill, the Coastal Resources Director for the City of Galveston. He's responsible for the beaches down here. A great show, Tyler, from Galveston, Texas today. Indeed, Peter. It's great to be here. And I'm really looking forward to this show. It's going to be a good one. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Sally, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. We are at the Texas uh, Shore Beach Association meeting here in Galveston, Texas, and Sally was good enough to join us after the meeting for a brief chat about the district. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Peter. Appreciate your time. Would you be so kind as to introduce our listeners to the Gulf Coast Protection District? What is this thing that the governor uh, signed and appointed you to? Certainly. The Gulf Coast Protection District was created to be the non-federal sponsor to the Coastal Texas Study Recommended Plan Chiefs Report Project, which lays out a coastal storm surge suppression system for the upper Texas coast. And our role will be to join the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in helping to uh, finance the construction of that project. And once completed, we would assume the operation and maintenance of the project. It is a tremendous project. The estimated cost in the Chief of Engineers report uh, signed September 21st this year on its way to the Secretary of the Army and then on to Congress for uh, authorization, full authorization and appropriation is $28.9 billion, Sally. That is a lot of money. It is indeed. Uh, The project, uh, for those out there who may have followed it on Coastal News Today, includes a gate system across Bolivar Roads, which is the entrance to the Houston-Galveston ship channel. Uh, This gate itself is, I believe, about 13 to 15 billion dollars. And then a series of improvements, beach restoration, ecosystem restoration, flood protection, a comprehensive, as they say, multi-line-of-defense program to protect uh, the city of Houston and Galveston from future storm surges. Uh, A a huge responsibility, Sally. How does it feel to be appointed uh, to the district's uh, board of directors now? Um, I think this is very exciting. This is a significant project that certainly provides protection for Galveston, but in my view, also, and I speak of Galveston, I believe it's going to be 
truly transformative for Galveston, both from a uh, protection of beaches and ecosystem, but also equally um, providing uh, the protection needed to really sustain this island economically. Um, I think that uh, in terms of the protections of this region, this project is not just a Gulf Coast project. This project has implications for the state of Texas, as well as other states in the nation. You know, when you look at the uh, eight or nine other states that receive goods and commodities through our Houston port and through our port of Galveston, it's significant. When you look at the 60% jet fuel that is produced in this region, it is very uh, significant for air freight, for tourism, and the industries and, and other states with, with regards to that. And I'll take it a step further. When you look at this project and the protection it affords the um, petrochemical industry infrastructure here, if the chemical producers can't produce the ingredients, the manufacturers can't generate the products. The, trucker, the truckers can't have no products to move the retailers yeah. have no products to stock on their shelves. Right. It's absolutely critical. Uh, the risks to the Galveston Bay system in Harris County, and as you said, the manufacturing and petrochemical industry is essential that this problem be tackled. Uh, the, uh, the Corps of Engineers has played an essential role in the vitality of Galveston, going back to the construction of the Galveston Seawall in the early 1900s, a federal shore protection project that has essentially saved uh, the city of Galveston many times over the last hundred years. So this idea of cooperating with the federal government, working with the Corps of Engineers for the benefit of Galveston Island and this region of the United States is, is something that Texas is comfortable doing, it seems. Yes, and, and you know, I, I don't want to let your leaders, uh, your listeners um, think that this is about the petrochemical industry and protecting the petrochemical industry. This is really more in the economic vein of providing economic security for our supply chain. Yes, right? absolutely. We're already seeing how fragile that supply chain can become. We really are. It's okay. uh, big news these days. And you have to look at the factors that pull on the threads of that supply chain and can really unravel it. No doubt. We've been talking about this on, on this podcast quite a bit. And one of the things that we have our eyes on with climate change in general is how it can be a disruptive force and actually kind of looking at COVID almost as a, a sentinel saying, hey, these are some of the ways that disruption can ripple through the globe uh, and that climate change can produce those things by shutting down a port, by creating what might be just a very small disruption could echo throughout our whole nation and even the world. And so it's no surprise to me that uh, the federal government, that the nation sees a benefit in investing in the Houston Ship Channel and, and in Houston. It's an incredibly important area. Uh, as are many major cities along the American shoreline. But what really stands out to me uh, in talking to you, Sally, is the, uh, 
the shift here, I don't want to say shift, but it represents a kind of new era in the relationship between this region in Texas, and let's just say the state of Texas, and the feds, because uh, we are going to, this is one of the largest projects ever taken, if not the largest projects uh, uh, undertaken by the, by the Corps of Engineers. By the Corps of Engineers. Yeah. And it's happening in Texas, an independent state, a fiercely independent state. But here we are hand in hand with federal partners. And you lead the district that is really, from a financial perspective, saying, hey, yeah, we're going to pony up. We're going to find a way to do this. That's that's a really interesting relationship. Can you talk a little bit how you would characterize that partnership? And I mean, you're, since you're starting it, this is brand new. What kind of culture you want to develop here between this partnership? Well, first, I want to make one very important clarification. I am one of 11 board members. Um, Our board president is Mayor Michelle Bechtel of Morgan's Point, um, who is, uh, you know, taking a, a leadership role. Our board of directors has three committees, one of which I chair, which is the Policy and Strategy Committee. Um, and, and looking at the historic nature of this relationship, um, I think I draw upon what you referenced earlier, Peter, and that was the seawall. You know, this is not our first partnership that yeah. had significant um, national implications. The seawall protects Galveston Island, but the seawall did much more than that. And I think that's what we're looking at now. I think this nation has experienced significant disasters and is recognizing that disasters are increasing in intensity and frequency. I believe that certainly looking at the Gulf Coast, that we have critical infrastructure here that serves not only six or seven states, but is, serves the nation. And that facilitates a national partnership to uh, ensure that this sufficient amount of protection is in place. So um, I think that the fact that the Gulf Coast Protection District is in place provides really, you know, a, a, a center point of giving a local relationship to our communities while at the same time facilitating these critical partnerships with the state and with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Such a good idea. I think the creation of the district, as you said in your presentation here at the uh, Texas Ashore and Beach Association meeting, uh, Senate Bill 1160, uh, creating the district just this year, I believe. Is it just this year? And uh, the 11-member board, uh, five representatives from the five counties involved in the district, plus six appointees from the governor. Tell us about the regional focus of the district and introduce us a little bit to what you feel is the role of the district overall. Uh, Well, certainly, I will say the role of the district right now, in my view, is to get this project this chief's report authorized by Congress. Without authorization, this project goes no further. Right. Okay, I can't stress that critical point enough. And that will be no easy task, okay? So the do-nothing plan is not okay with you? The do-nothing plan is just simply not an option. Failure is not an option. 2022 is when Congress is 
regularly scheduled to take up another Water Resources Development Act. Correct. That will be the vehicle upon which we will get this project authorized, but that must happen first. And the Gulf Coast Protection District will be taking an aggressive lead in communicating with Congress and, and communicating with other states, with communicating with our own uh, Texas industries and businesses here and gaining their support and assistance in those communications. So that, to me, first and foremost, is our number one rule. Number one priority, get this authorized okay. by Congress in word of 2022. That's right. Great goal. Obviously, um, uh, uh, immediately on the table for us, um, that was mentioned during the course of the meeting today was the Sabine to Galveston Bay project, which is something that was actually, um, the chief's report, I believe, was actually authorized in 2016, and um, the project was funded by Congress in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. Um, in that scenario, Congress chose to write the check for their share and said, here you go, go do it. Yep. And um, the Gulf Coast Protection District will assume the role of the non-federal sponsor in that capacity. Uh, who, who was the non-federal sponsor originally for that Sabine Pass project? Um, there, the Sabine Pass, in that regard, it was a little different because you have Jefferson County, which is a part of that Regional plan, regional yeah. regional regional project. Okay, they signed their um, um, project partnership agreement with the core. Mm. Um, I believe we will be taking on a non-federal sponsor role with them, but I'm I'm not sure about that. Um, and then we have Orange County, where they are in the design phase of of that. And they signed an interlocal agreement in order to assume that design role. And now we will be assuming the non-federal sponsor for them. The um, Texas legislature appropriated $200 million over the biennium, a portion of which will, uh, not a portion, the most significant amount of it will be going to the Jefferson and Orange County projects. Yep. Um, a small portion of it will be going for the administration and startup of the Gulf Coast Protection District over the biennium. Fantastic. You know, it's amazing when you look around the United States, you see the Corps of Engineers contemplating these very significant, large-scale, expensive projects, whether it's in, in New York or in the state of New Jersey or in Charleston, South Carolina, where they're looking at a $3 billion uh, levy system or ring system to protect the city of Charleston and out in San Francisco Bay. The Corps of Engineers uh, understands that the risks that the American shoreline and the American people who recreate, live, and work on our shorelines are, are really in the crosshairs here as conditions change. It's a tremendous responsibility, and I got to give the state of Texas great credit in creating the Gulf Coast Protection District. As that legislation was moving through the Texas legislature earlier this year, did you have a sense that this would uh, be your fate, that you would end up as part of the leadership of this new district? 
It never even occurred to me. <laughs> it's a good pick. I have to say the governor made a great pick. I, you know, my mission, um, I was in Austin during the regular session of the legislature, um, and usually there, uh, and this was kind of an odd year, if you recall. They, it was. They really didn't get started until March. Um, but starting in March, I was there roughly every week, and the city of Galveston, um, we didn't have a specific, uh, city-specific legislative uh, priority. Our main concern was to ensure that, you know, Senator Taylor's bill to create the Gulf Coast Protection District moved forward, and we wanted to do what we could to help advance that bill. Um, so that was what I viewed to be my mission, was to get that bill to help him and Representative Dennis Paul in any way I could to get that bill um, passed and but it, you know it was presented a great opportunity because it, I reached out to the Texas Association of Business I reached out to the Texas Association of Manufacturers and the Texas Retail Association all of whom stepped up in support of the creation of this Gulf wow. Coast Protection District recognizing the significant supply chain implications of what happens they know what's good for them when a major storm yeah. hits this region and let, let me you know one thing that i i always say to to folks now this idea of a singular major storm we need to forget that right all right louisiana has taught us yeah there is no more singular major storms right. louisiana last summer two major storms six weeks apart the direct hits 12 miles apart. Yeah, devastating. All right. Now, envision a, a scenario that includes the Houston Ship Channel, the petrochemical infrastructure, Galveston Island. That's all within a 12-mile easily. Right. Yeah. Six weeks apart. Risk is real here. All right. Yeah. You know, that's not... That is economic catastrophe waiting to happen yeah it is for the really beyond texas i mean we would really feel it no doubt here but that would stretch most, globally most Nationally. essentially beyond texas uh american airlines would be feeling it delta airlines in georgia would be feeling it um amazon and washington state would be feeling it walmart in arkansas would be feeling it right lot on the table, lot at stake. One of the things that comes up when states or entities like the Gulf Coast Protection District participate in these federal partnerships is the capacity to pay the non-federal share, of course. And you mentioned in your remarks that as a requirement of this partnership with the Corps, that the district does have taxing authority and imminent domain power. Those are essential powers that must be in place. Texas is a low-tax state, so the idea that the manufacturers and the other business organizations that you met with are in favor of this and understand it, uh, it's not clear that the district is going to have to impose taxes, but the power to do so is an important uh, uh, capacity that you have to have. Can you comment on that generally? Um, Well, obviously, we had to have the taxing authority to sign the partnership agreement. 
uh, to sign the partnership agreement. We haven't done that. Yet. It was a requirement by the core. Yeah. It's, right? it's an absolute requirement. That's not unique to us. No. We have to have that in place to sign the Orange County um, pri- uh, partnership agreement as with also the, the Coastal Texas Study partnership agreement. Now, does that mean we're going to rush out and, you know, say, okay, you know, let's start raking in the property tax revenues now. Absolutely not. There are protections designed in that legislation. Um, We do have the authority up to five cents per 100 value, Mm -hmm. um, valuation, uh, but we'd have to go to the voters. Um, In my view, I do not believe, and of course, you know, I'll put my city of Galveston hat on for just a moment. I do not believe that the residents of Galveston should have to shoulder that burden alone. Not at all. Okay, not even close. No, couldn't be done. Shouldn't be done. This project has implications for this state. This project has implications for this nation. Yeah. More so... And, and, and this is what I find particularly intriguing. This project has implications for the insurance industry. Hmm. Okay. 100%. So we have just recently learned about this um, over the summer, but was reminded of it this morning. Um, the Reinsurance Association of America testified before the Senate Banking and Urban Affairs Committee in July, I believe. And they talked about the capital that they have that is ready for investment to the tune of something like $1.2 trillion. Wow, that's a big pot. Now, when you look at what can be leveraged out there, um, you begin to understand two things. One, property tax isn't the only game in town nor should it be. Not at all. Okay. Um, Two, what is most important is when you're looking at a non-federal share that we're going to be looking at for this project, the idea that any one singular source of funding is going to take care of it, to me, is just not realistic. Right. Okay. It's great selling. It's going to be several streams. Blended. You got to blend a lot of sources together here to make this work. Several streams yeah. of funding that will come together to make this non-federal share a reality. As resilient as the waves. I like to say, yeah, when big coastal projects like this, the funding has to be as resilient and recurrent as the waves. It's got to be consistent, reliable, and coming your way all the time. These are big projects, big investment, but. I really like your, uh, your, your mention of the reinsurance industry. There's a lot happening in the insurance and reinsurance market now with respect to coastal risks. We're starting to see parametric in, uh, insurance products. We, the insurance industry and the reinsurance folks will benefit from this project. This is going to substantially reduce their exposure to future losses, and you think they would be interested in making it happen. So when they're sitting on $2 trillion dollars, uh, perhaps the better part of this is for them to pay for the prevention of disaster as opposed to the payments of a disaster that has occurred. There's some real opportunity there. I hope there's some forward-thinking folks in that community that you can reach out to over time. Well, and I think it's certainly something that is intriguing to facilitate 
engaging in a conversation. Right. The other thing I wanted to ask you, if, if you've been following the RISE Act, which is a, a bill in Congress right now, of course, the, I think the $200 million that the district received from the legislature was at least in part from GOMISA revenues that the state receives from offshore oil and gas revenues. Are there is a chance here that the RISE Act, which is sponsored by Senator Whitehouse and uh, and and the, the senator from Louisiana, Sheldon, and I forget his name, Cassidy, Bill Cassidy, Bill Cassidy, is going to increase the amount of revenue available to the coastal states from offshore oil and gas revenue. And this is a possible funding source, I would think, for the district's responsibilities going forward. At least I would hope it would be considered. Um, I think that would be a wonderful opportunity to pursue. Um, you know, whenever you start talking about Congress, especially now, yeah. <laughs> you get into some really tricky waters. Swamp um, waters, some would uh, say. Yes. Well, it is the Potomac. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so I, I would definitely keep my fingers crossed for that for a number of different reasons, not just for the Gulf Coast Protection District, but for our own beaches here in Galveston yeah. Island and the tremendous resource those funds have been for us in, in the past. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, we need to be looking at all opportunities, both public and private, and where possible leverage the greatest amount of public-private partnerships that we can established. Tremendous challenge. I think that the good news here is we've got some years to go. Uh, the, As you say, the uh, Chief of Engineers report was signed. Uh, it is going to Congress, hopefully for authorization and word of 2022. That would begin the design process, which according to Kelly Berks-Copes, the uh, Galveston District Project Manager, is about a five-year process just on the gates alone. A lot of time here for the state to get its ducks in a row financially to partner with the state. Uh, a huge responsibility, Sally. I think it. Uh, I, I think we wish you and your fellow board members at the uh, Gulf Coast Prevention District all the luck in the world in sorting through this very complex equation that you're facing here. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate the conversation and your time this afternoon. And in part two of our show from Galveston, Texas, in the Texas ASBPA meeting, we're talking to a couple of the coastal professionals leading the way in Galveston, Texas. Joining us now are Brandon Hill, the Coastal Resources Manager for the city of Galveston, and his trusty assistant, Russell Cole, the Assistant Coastal Resources Manager for the city of Galveston. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, I have to say, before we get going, I have to comment that I'm sitting in a room with three Aggies. That's right. Three Gigam Aggies. Three marine biology Aggies. Is that correct, Brandon? Are you, were you marine biology as well? I was not. What, what did you study in your, in your uh, Aggie days? My undergrad was ocean coastal resource management. Then I went on to my master's in marine resource management. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's me and Russell who are the true true guys because we were the marine biology people. We understand the biology of the sea. That's the advantage we've got, right, Russell? It's the evolutionary process, sea crawling towards the beach here. That's right. 
Well, thanks a lot for joining us uh, from the Galveston Island. Uh, what, what are we at? We're at the San Luis Convention Center. It's a nice place, by the way, for the meeting. It was a good meeting today. Tyler, didn't you think? Well, you know, it's always barbecue. And yeah, that's so I, right. I'm never going to complain when we have a barbecue. That's lunch. right. Good digs, good meal. And uh, anyway, we're trying to learn and get a co- uh, uh, just catch up with a couple of the folks who are on the front lines of coastal management here in Texas. Uh, Brandon, tell us about your new job. You just started this job. I wouldn't say just started it, but recently started it. And I have to say, we have to mention for the record that Brandon is also now a member of the board of the National ASBPA, was nominated and accepted as a board member in, in New Orleans, where we were, Tyler, earlier this month. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brandon, what are you doing at the City of Galveston as Coastal Resource Manager these days? Uh, we are keeping very busy. Uh, the ocean never sleeps, so neither do we. Um, you know, a large part of what our job entails is what people think of in terms of permitting, what they can do on their property, what they can do near their property, and how exactly that works for them. And one of the things that both Russell and I have been focusing on is really streamlining that process. Currently, when you apply for a permit, whether you are building a mansion or putting in some sand fencing, the process calls for a lot of the same materials. And uh, those two things are not the same. And so one of the big things that we're working on is right-sizing our over site of the coastline Hmm. we want to make sure that what we're facilitating for people is the right level of uh, oversight in in permitting and and the process but we're not wanting to make it overly burdensome for people to do the right thing on their property outstanding so for the listeners around the country what we're talking about here is the dune protection act and the open beaches act two fundamental laws of coastal management here in the state of texas and the permitting program underneath that, a beachfront construction certificate and a dune protection permit, those permits are issued by local governments under the auspices of authority from the general land office, the state of Texas, that reviews it. But it's a good point, Brandon. Having worked on that program, you're right, that the process involved in getting a permit for a sand fence in a mansion looks a whole lot the same and involves about a similar amount of work. Uh, how's the state responding to the initiative to maybe right-size these processes? They're very supportive. I mean, they, they want to obviously always make sure that they are providing the uh, correct amount of oversight that they are tasked with. But we found that so far they have been incredibly supportive of our initiatives. We've been working very closely with them as we tweak the forms themselves and, and work with these applicants because what we've found having done this on the coastline for a little while, uh, a lot of the times there are unwritten shortcuts. You know, there there are these agreements that if somebody is gonna put some plants on a dune, maybe all they need to do is send some pictures and a recent plat and that'll be good enough. Yeah. Whereas if you're going to develop a housing development, you're gonna need to engineer that. You're gonna need to do a survey. And the those have never been put in writing that I've seen where uh, the the idea that you might be able to just do some simple photos or a more simple plan or you do a survey, but maybe not a full topographical survey, depending on what it is that you're proposing. Those sorts of things have been implemented at the personal level at, at the those who were working on it, the managers. 
but they weren't uh, officially written down anywhere. And so we're trying to make sure that moving forward, the city of Galveston and its residents have the ability to manage their coastline in as efficient manner as possible. With the least amount of bureaucratic you know, cost that's unnecessary. I think that's an important component of sound coastal permitting or permitting in general is if you're imposing transaction costs on your applicants, are those costs necessary to make the right decision? And uh, I have to do say that the, at the Beach Dune program can be a little overzealous in how it's written and implemented sometimes. Uh, so in addition to doing beach and dune permitting in your shop as the coastal resources manager, what else is on your list of things to do these days, Brandon? Well, I've got a passion project, Peter. All right. What's that? Well, my passion project is I have always wanted to come back to A&M Galveston and teach a course. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> Professor yeah. Brandon. Yeah. Professor Hill. Professor Hill. Yeah. It's, it's been a goal of mine uh, since I graduated. And when I came here, I was very happy to find that the city had already established a directed studies course that had happened uh, for one year. And actually, Russell Cole, uh, who's with me here today, was one of the students who went through that program. And it was very successful. I am very happy to be able to announce that we are going to not only continue that program, but we're going to be doing a fairly uh, major overhaul on the curriculum that's going to be included in the program. And, and here's what I'm talking about. When I stepped outside uh, these doors, actually, because I graduated right here in this building. Wow. Yep. And uh, I did that on a Friday and I stepped into City Hall at South Padre Island on that Monday. I remember when you came down to South Padre as a coastal shoreline protection manager, shoreline manager, I believe, for the city of South Padre. That's right. And it was a shock, to say the least, to go from the armchair textbook management of the coast to actually doing it with a community who you lived around. And I want to make sure that we are giving the students who are going through the same program right now that shock earlier on right. in their career. And so the new title, the new goal of the course is going to be all about practical coastal community management. Hmm. And it is going to draw upon uh, connections that I've been able to make not just through uh, my employment, but also through ASBPA. I'm gonna be bringing in folks from uh, around the US, potentially around the world, to talk about coastal community management challenges. Then we're really gonna start to dial into uh, what are the Texas challenges, and then what are the Galveston challenges, and it's all gonna culminate with the students being given the opportunity to draft responses to some redacted emails or work through some wow. some real world uh, case studies. Really? And the ones that do the best are actually gonna be given the opportunity to come to the-, the And city. respond to your emails. <laughs> they are going to- can be an intern, right? That's right. So they're gonna be given the opportunity to, in the course, to actually begin interacting with the public, working through these issues with them. Wow. And then, the piece de resistance is that two of the students will be receiving $10,000 stipends for a summer internship program. 
Wow. Which they will work one-on-one with Russell and I in our division, addressing real world, real community issues. And it's, it's my goal that this not just be a one-off program, that this becomes a program that we can take into the future that will begin to really train up the next uh, generation of coastal resource managers and, and really increase the preparation of the folks who are coming out of Tama. Outstanding. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're very excited about that. That's a good. That's a good idea. Now, Russell, you've how long have you been with the city as the assistant coastal resource manager? About three weeks today. <laughs> Is that right? Well, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. First impressions. Would you like to share them? More paperwork than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> lots of yeah. forms. Lots of applications. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I'd like to address is coming from the other side of that directed studies that Brandon was mentioning, I have the perspective of having gone through a whole college education dedicated to the coastal zone and yet lacking some of that hands-on experience in the real world in a job where we are applying this sort of thing. And so I can really appreciate what Brandon's doing trying to give students this more or less on-the-job training that will be crucial moving forward for our division and any other municipalities facing these same problems. Yeah, you know, Peter, we talk about this all the time on the show, that there's the natural world, which exists and does its thing. Yeah. And then there's us weird people. And we have society and we have, you know, this brain between our ears. And oftentimes the challenging bit when it comes to managing the shore Although, of course, we do pump sand, we do understand the physics, we do map a a beach profile, but it's actually the social piece. It's understanding the people and what the people want and what the people perceive as good management. And Brandon, I'm really, you know, your story's interesting. I I now reflecting back on those days that Peter and I were present as you just stepped out of school and you went down to South Padre Island on the southern tip of the Texas coast, a smaller community than Galveston, true, but a complex community mm-hmm. um can you kind of illuminate maybe some of those practical lessons that you learned that that stick out in your mind you know just maybe some concrete things about dealing with the community itself when you say community coastal community management give us an example of that yeah i'd, I'd love to i can recall many many interactions with residents down in the valley down in south padre island that are memorable because (laughs) human beings are memorable. Human beings are fascinating. We are endlessly fascinating creatures and the things that uh, mean so much to one person can mean absolutely nothing to another. And our capacity to surprise one another is nearly boundless. I actually I touched on this in my uh, ASBPA talk this year in New Orleans where I talked about how do you manage the human element and and I touched on how uh, there is a great philosopher Kevin Brown who said a person is smart people are dumb panicky animals hmm. and of course Kevin Brown is actually the the real name of uh, Agent K from Men in Black, 
But as a kid of the 90s, that uh, movie really resonated with me a lot. And, and I, I thought that line sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it is. But the, the fact of the matter is communicating with a person is, is pretty easy. Communicating with people is where things get difficult. Mm-hmm. And that's where the true nature of community management comes in. It is very easy as one with a scientific background to take a look at the natural resources that are along our coast and say, those must be protected at all costs. Those have intrinsic value and they are a complex system that, that we, we can't understand. It's another thing to realize that what we're sitting on is a giant sandbar and that humans started disturbing this thing way back when Lafitte dropped his boat anchor down and decided to set up a tent. And, and even prior with the Karankawa and the Native American community along Texas coast, yeah. Yeah, of course. So we as, as humans, naturally, we, we impact the environment around us. And I remember learning many lessons while down in South Padre around what I initially saw as just impacts to a beach were actually something more akin to trying to understand uh, the, the complexity of the natural system meets the human system. So, f- for instance, um, South Padre Island is known for being a fantastic spring break location. and Very popular. Very popular. Uh, I never got the chance to go down and enjoy it in that manner. Me neither. Yeah. Me neither. That makes, that makes, did you enjoy it? Not my scene. So me neither. We just established we were all a bunch of nerds, <laughs> which is why we're on a coastal a, a, podcast. A, a coastal podcast. Uh-huh. It's one of the qualifications to be on the show. That's I, yeah, I thought so. I don't know. I kind of want to do a little field research and learn more of it anthropologically, of course. Indeed, of course. Yeah. So when when I was first exposed to the South Padre Island Spring Break, I don't know if everybody knows this, but they set up the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, as if there was a hurricane incoming every time spring break rolls around because that is the level of preparation that has to be done in order to make sure that that community functions. Now, there are a lot of parties, concerts, events, races, things that happen out right on the beach uh, that impact the uh, public access, as as you mentioned, in Texas, Open Beaches Act is is an ever present um, uh, fact that we have to keep in mind. And when I experienced my first spring break, I remember thinking, "This is insane. Uh, how am I supposed to make sure that I dot all the I's and check all the T's?" And the, it was a true challenging moment in a in a paradigm shift for me as I came to uh, appreciate the the real world of coastal management. Yeah. Um, so when I ended up having to work out agreements between um, the city and the Texas General Land Office that, you know, when it came to, let's say, uh, police activity on the beach, there was going to be times where the Open Beaches Act was not going to be able to uh, function as intended because for the safety 
of uh, the public, the police had to come in and clear the beach and get the area cleaned up. And that allowed us to remove literal tons of trash from the beach uh, as they uh, exited. But it was a Open Beaches Act uh, uh, challenge that, that had to be addressed. And on the environmental side, you know, there, there's always the balance of beach access do you access the beach via a path through the dunes that's just worn over time due to foot traffic? Do you lay out some sort of access mat yep. product? Do you build a walkover? Each one of those comes with its own uh, challenges and each one has its own benefits and there is no right choice for everybody. Not you know, Walkovers do not work for everyone. Simple sand paths do not work for everyone. And as a coastal manager, trying to help people find those solutions, those real world solutions, is uh, one of the things that I love the most. The complex puzzle. Cole, what did you want to add? Sure. And on or that, Russell Cole, I'm sorry. You're good. That. So on the topic of the social aspect and a little less extreme example than spring break, but probably more common, maybe the most that we have, is exactly that the beach access the dune walkover we constantly face the challenge of people walking over the dunes to get to the beach and that is a major concern for us because as we know it erodes the dunes themselves it damages the vegetation and so we work on finding solutions to that as brandon just mentioned the walkovers the mats some sort of consolidated way to both provide accessibility while maintaining the dune structure. However, the majority of the public has no concept that what they're doing is damaging to the ecosystem. The average person, especially if they don't live in a coastal area, if they're just a tourist, they think that the dunes are just the, the back of the beach with, that hasn't it's been playland. It, it's, it's playland, yeah. Pile, piles of sand. It's and, a pile of weeds. sand. You want, some, to, you want to drive on it. Yeah, well, somebody hasn't uh, gone out there and mowed, or that's where uh, they need to set up their picnic, or that is just the pile of uh, sand and grass that's in the way of their beach house to the beach. Yeah. And so people are going to take that shortest route between two points unless, A, there's something better, and, B, they have a reason to. Well, here's what I like about your idea that of this practicum course, Brandon, is having managed uh, the General Land Office's Beach Dune permitting program for many years, uh, being able to strike the balance and understanding uh, what the program is intending to do trying to fulfill the public purpose to protect the resources to make sure there's public access but also recognize the human activity that is going to be occurring uh, one of the key things in my opinion and and for permitters especially uh, as you do permitting over time you start to realize that these programs have a certain asset value and you can expend that and waste that. So if you're bothering people with, can you send us a copy of the FEMA flood map, which is a requirement in the rules, but you've got a drawer full of FEMA flood maps and you've got them digitally, uh, you don't want to pester people with that, even though the rule requires it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not careful about how you use the program to actually protect the resource, actually protect the public interest, but become too 
if I can say bureaucratized in it, the support for the program will wane and they will take it away. This has happened in the past. The moratorium on the enforcement of the Open Beaches Act in Texas that was implemented by uh, David Dewhurst with the assistance of the legislature was a function of overreaching on um, uh, Open Beaches Act enforcement in Texas. So this is really, I think, what you're doing here and what you could do is a great service to Texas uh, because people who come out of this program understanding the complexity of permitting that can work for a city or a county uh, instead of having to learn those hard lessons that all of us who've been permitters have had to learn i think it would be an absolute asset i'd be really really excited to see what this program can do it's a great idea thank you i couldn't agree more and the, the thing that comes to my mind is actually what's going on on the oregon coast uh, they had a big problem with, uh, you know, they have several cliff state parks that are right along the coast that are iconic and extremely beautiful. And they've had an issue uh, with hikers. You know, this is different than Texas. We have a dune system. No dune system to speak of in this particular park that comes to mind. But uh, our host, Erica Sears, who works for the Oregon Coast Tourism Association, realized that uh, the big tourism podcast. This is the big tourism it's podcast on ASPN. Yep. Uh, they realized that they needed to get out and educate uh, Mm -hmm. tourists and local businesses Mm -hmm. to encourage people to use these. These trails draw in thousands and thousands of people from Seattle and Portland come out to experience these places. However, if people are falling off the trails or degrading the trails themselves by misusing them, the value of that asset goes down. And man, dune systems are maybe the, the most underappreciated. Maybe the marsh and the swamp are the lowest on the totem pole. <laughs> the dune, the dune yeah. is like pretty, you know, it's down yeah, there. People take it for granted. We need to, we need to raise the dune stock. Yeah, I, I do believe. And yeah, uh, yeah. education, I know, is going to be an incredibly important piece of the community management piece, Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandon, real quick, uh, and uh, are you also involved in the shoreline management and beach restoration program uh, that the city is undertaking? Do you have that responsibility as well, or at least participate in those projects, formulation and execution? So uh, we are very lucky here at the city of Galveston to have our sister organization, which is the Park Board of Trustees, and they do a phenomenal job of actually overseeing those permits at this time. The city does provide uh, support through IDC funds. Yeah. And our division has actually, one of our other core tenants is that we are increasing the level of participation that we are having, uh, not just with the park board, but also with the Uh, resource agencies that help facilitate that sort of long-term planning and and those nourishment activities. Previously, the city uh, established that in order to move forward, they were going to need to bring in a someone with a coastal resource background to head this division. And uh, that is one of the primary reasons that, that I'm sitting here today is that they had acknowledged that in the past, the city didn't have uh, a, a full suite of people that, that had this sort of very niche background, if, if we're being honest, despite, yeah. despite the fact that, Particular. that there's three of us here. Uh, you know, the, it, is a, it is a niche, you know, it's, it's like, uh, like uh, Liam Neeson would say, it's a particular set of skills. And 
we needed that here in the city and we had the ability to uh, bring on Russell so that we would have uh, two of us here with that background and the intention to answer your question Peter is we have had a um, we've had a side role in that process we have not been as active as I would like us to be because it is a full not just community issue when it comes to beneficial use of dredge material it's it's a regional one Mm -hmm. and it's something that we're working to increase the regional conversation about right is is where is sand accumulating that it's being removed is it being removed in a manner that is then allowing it to be beneficially used because a lot of the times you find that one person's problem could be used to solve another person. Hopefully, yeah. The two for one. And on getting people to think that they're a part of a bigger community. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the idea that you're thinking actually beyond, I'm guessing, even the boundaries of the city of Galveston. I mean, there are a lot of players here. The, the So much of the sand that has been placed here comes out of the Houston Ship Channel. Yeah. Uh, and as we say on the American shoreline, everything is connected. That's why we endeavor on this podcast and on ASPN to de-silo the, mm-hmm. the coastal community. Talk it's a way of them. broadening your, your sense of who you, to what community do you belong? I would say that in addition to belonging to, you know, your Galveston community, your neighborhood, I'll start very small, your neighborhood community, Galveston, the region, the state. I believe that we all belong to a broader coastal community, the American the American shoreline community. Peter. Absolutely, yeah. Russell, what do you have to say? Yeah, so exactly dovetailing into a critical part of management theory that fortunately is emphasized on heavily here at Tamug is the idea that ecosystems do not adhere to jurisdictional boundaries. Right. And this is seen on the small scale of the beach in front of the seawall here to the beach on the rest of the island, but the entirety of East Texas beaches down to what is west of here, but all of the surrounding ecosystem is one functional community that has to be thought of as an integrative holistic system for us to manage this resource effectively. Well said, Russ, let's say you've been on the job three weeks, you've got square one firmly nailed down. That's right. It's not uh, jurisdictional boundaries politically are only one part of the equation. It's the way we act, but it doesn't uh, reflect the, the, the reality of the complexity of coastal resource management. So from the front lines of the Galveston uh, coastal management community, uh, Brandon Hill, the coastal resources manager, and his trusty sidekick, Russell Cole, the assistant a coastal resource manager for the city of Galveston. A team. A couple of guys who have to figure it all out. So all you permit applicants out there, you just have to remember there are some really, really tough and intricate choices that have to be made in these systems. And they these guys work their ass off to do the best they can with it. And uh, everybody's got to work together for the betterment of the coast. And uh, so, Brandon, thanks a lot for giving us a dip, uh, a toe, let's dip our toe into your universe. And Russell, welcome to the uh to the shoreline management community of texas and uh wish you a long and uh, long and successful career thanks a lot for joining us on the american shoreline podcast you guys thank you both thanks sir beaches are sailed to build a hotel